0: I'm Jamie Floyd, host of All Things Considered at WNYC. You're listening to Politics Brief, a collection of our very best coverage of the 2018 midterm elections. We'll share the sharpest and most timely talk, analysis, and original reporting from shows like The Takeaway, The Brian Lehrer Show, On the Media, and Radio Lab Presents More Perfect, and from the WNYC Newsroom, which is watching key races in New York and New Jersey. Enjoy.
1: We need more plates. No. Oh, ah. Uh, Doesn't that look uh, good? Honey, you're eating
0: southern.
1: <laughs> We're in Memphis, and this is Paula Casey, one of my new favorite people. Paula is Tennessee down to her bones. Barbecue, Grand old Opry, and, of course, its most famous son,
0: I was in the newspaper business in 1977 in Clarksville, Tennessee on the Tennessee-Kentucky line when the teletype started ringing ding 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 and it said dateline Memphis Elvis Presley died today at
1: the age Now Paula's father happened to represent a big national florist in Tennessee and his company got the funeral gig He sets up shop at Graceland, and people start sending flowers. But they send so many, he can't figure out what to do with them all.
0: So they decided to pass out flowers to everybody who filed past Elvis's casting.
1: Which put Paula's dad right over the body, through the whole thing. Paula, of course, was a humongous fan, still is. So later, when her fellow Elvis fans had, you know, questions about the king's sudden death... She knew who to ask.
0: So I said to my father, Daddy, they're having all these Elvisotties. What are you thinking? He said, you know, I stood by that casket and that some bitch was dead.
1: <laughs> uh, thank you for that. <laughs> so that's Paula. She's a big personality, gregarious, unafraid, and deeply Southern, which she would have to be given the fight she's gotten herself mixed up in. Tennessee was the final state to ratify the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote everywhere in America. And Paula has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a string of monuments across the state to make sure everybody remembers that proud fact. She calls it a suffrage trail. And that's the fight she actually wants to have. Problem is, the history itself is still haunting us. See, the 19th Amendment was controversial not only because it gave women the vote, but especially because it gave Black women the vote. So its history offers a stark example of how race and gender and power have always been mixed up together in American politics. I'm Kyright. this is the United States of anxiety, gender, power, and the midterm elections. And in this episode, The Pedestal. Before Paula took us out for barbecue and Elvis nostalgia, she took us by the spot she wants for her suffrage trail here in Memphis. And we
0: want this location. And I'm gonna park on the side okay. so we can walk the park, okay? Great. I want y'all to get some sense of it
1: right in the center of downtown, perched above the banks of the Mississippi River.
0: It's all gonna go right here. Right in this square here. This will here. be the plaza, and we may have to pour some more concrete. I'll know that later. He wants a landscape architect and a contractor. so
1: I tell Paula's like a kid at an amusement park as she paces around explaining what she's got in mind. If you,
0: there's five or six busts outside, and then we're gonna have etchings of the glass with the LED light. We're gonna have 13 or 14 people. And it's be
1: she wants it all done by 2020, in time for the centennial celebration of women's suffrage. But there's one big hurdle. Okay.
0: So down here is the statue that will be removed. The Sons of the Confederate Veterans, bless their hearts, they filed an appeal. The, the chancellor of Nashville ruled in favor of
1: This park was once known as Confederate Park. And a monument to Jefferson Davis presided over it for decades, right up until last year, when in the aftermath of Charlottesville, Memphis began to take down its Confederate iconography. These statues no longer represent who we are as a modern, diverse city with momentum. Paula won the right to use the newly opened space for her suffrage trail. But Confederate preservationists have challenged that decision. It's a complicated dispute, but essentially they say the city violated Tennessee's historic preservation law.
0: They're probably taking the Supreme Court, which means they're under a stay, so nothing can happen with this park unless the judge lifts the stay.
1: And so when we visited this summer, the park was just stuck in time. The Jefferson Davis statue was gone, but there was still this great big stone pedestal, the pedestal upon which the great man once stood, now vacant and surrounded by a chain link fence, like a monument to an unknown future.
0: It is so important that we understand the struggle for women to become enfranchised. It was treated as a footnote in history when I was growing up. There are not enough women in statuary, and there are maybe six of Black women in statuary. And I'm doing my part to correct that. This monument is going to serve many purposes.
1: But the suffragists who Paula wants to honor were terribly familiar with this dance, this maneuvering around Confederate mythology in order to create public space for women. And we're arguably still living with how they handled it. So as we think about the current election, in which women will likely play an unprecedented role, we have to review that history. Because if you want to change the power structure, you have to first acknowledge that it's white.
2: It's June
3: of 1919,
1: and Congress has finally passed the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution after decades and decades of sitting on it.
3: 40 years at that time. 40 years. And it
1: finally gets out, and it goes to the states. This is historian Elaine Weiss. Her book, The Women's Hour, tells the dramatic story that unfolds over the following year. See, congressional approval is just the first step in amending the Constitution. After that, suffragists have to also get three-fourths of the states to ratify it. And they started off like gangbusters. In the first few weeks, lawmakers in something like a dozen states just rush it through. Zip, zip, zip. In in some, they actually stand
3: up and sing God Bless America or My Country Tis of Thee. It's a great patriotic moment. In other states, it begins to bog down.
1: The problem is timing. Most state legislatures aren't even in session right now, and many won't be anytime soon. So, suffragists have to convince governors to call special sessions. And some very powerful interests get in the way of that. Remember, suffrage activists are also a big part of the push for prohibition. So, the liquor lobby, they are against this. Also, factory owners, they don't want women weighing in on stuff like child labor laws. And really, anybody who already has power, they are not interested in shaking things up. There's a couple of governors who
3: actually fear they're going to be impeached if their uh, (laughs) legislators come back. So it goes slowly, and in fact, the suffragists get very frustrated.
1: They feel a sense of urgency, and rightly. They saw that the nation
3: was swinging in a reactionary arc. There's a lot of Anxiety about immigration. There's a lot of labor unrest because industries are changing. There's technologies that's eliminating jobs. Does this sound familiar? And the suffragists realize that if they don't get it now, it may not happen
1: for years and years. So they organize, state by state. They sweep the western states and the Midwest. They take a tough and unexpected loss in Delaware. But by summer of 1920, they have 35 states, just one short of victory. And looking at the political map, all roads point to Tennessee. It's clear that the final showdown will have to be in the South. So in July of 1920, the world descends on Nashville. They come from all over. Press and lobbyists, party operatives, and movement strategists. But one of the first players to arrive is a native Tennessean, a savvy activist who sees herself as the last line of defense against this wicked, corrupting idea of women voting. Me and our producer, Jessica Miller, we visited the Tennessee State Library and Archives. Casey Jimrick, an archivist, introduced us to this often overlooked but pivotal character in the suffrage story.
4: So Josephine Anderson Pearson, um, she was born in 1868 in Gallatin, Tennessee, which is about 30 minutes north of us. Her father was a Methodist reverend and her mother was a temperance worker. Um, So she's already part of this really active, community-focused family.
1: And Elaine Weiss points out that Josephine Pearson led an exceptional life for a woman in the early 20th century.
3: Josephine is actually the most well-educated of all the characters in my book. She is a college graduate. She is a dean of small women's colleges in the South, several of them, and she teaches and is an administrator. So she does live a slightly unusual life, and we might say a progressive life, but her cultural and social and religious ideas are very conservative.
4: And in her unpublished memoirs, which we have here at the Library and Archives, uh, she says that her mom, Amanda Caroline, essentially gave her this deathbed vow.
3: To never let suffrage invade their native state of Tennessee. And if it did, would she fight it in the name of her mother and father? And Josephine pledges to her mother she'll do that. She kisses her brow to... uh, seal this vow and she takes on the mantle
1: of an anti suffragist. And listen, for at least some people, this probably begs a big question. Why would these two women, one of them highly educated, the other a lifelong activist, why would they be so committed to their own disenfranchisement? Because for both of them, there is something much larger at stake. For Josephine and her mom, This was about pedestals, like the one Paula Casey is still trying to maneuver around in Memphis.
0: You know, we were indoctrinated. People from outside the South don't understand how that indoctrination worked. And the Daughters of the Confederacy, to their credit, understood how to write history.
1: So you got to remember, the Southern power structure had spent a whole generation since the Civil War, all of Pearson's life, trying to restore its authority. Decades of vigilante violence and legal wrangling and myth-making about the dignity and the valor of men who had been barbarous traitors. You're a woman sending a soldier to his death with a beautiful memory. Scarlet, kiss me. Kiss me once. It had all paid off. And by 1920, the North had left the South to govern its Black population as it saw fit. But now, after all of that, along comes this business of women voting. And Josephine Pearson understood the unique danger that idea posed for white supremacy.
4: A lot of the women who were part of the anti-suffrage movement, including Josephine Pearson, um, have ties to this also late 19th century movement for the memory of the Confederacy, the lost cause. Josephine Pearson's a big part of this.
1: That's next.
0: You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be back after a quick break.
2: I'm Carol Busey.
1: Nice to meet you, Carol. Nice to meet I'm you. I'm Kai. Tom,
2: yes. Tom is coming. He went to get something out of his office.
1: Okay. Well, How we'll was win. your night? My night was lovely. It's a lovely hotel.
2: Isn't <laughs> it? Isn't it? It's quite grand.
1: The Hermitage Hotel, it is a truly stunning property, completed in 1910 as a beacon of modernity. And they built it literally adjacent to power, right beside the Tennessee State Capitol. So of course, it was here in August of 1920 where all of the players gathered in the huge ornate lobby of the Hermitage Hotel.
2: This hotel ultimately was filled with these mystery men They were anti-suffrage lobbyists. They had been in every state where the ratification of the 19th Amendment had been denied.
1: Carol Busey is the official county historian. She and Tom Vickstrom, who is the Hermitage's own in-house historian, they gave me a tour of the final battleground.
2: Yes, we're headed to the third floor where Carrie Chapman Kett stayed, and that was referred to by some as the command center.
1: Okay, so Carrie Chapman-Catt, she is a big player in this drama. She's the big fish, the veteran political operative, groomed by Susan B. Anthony to take over the suffrage movement. And she comes swooping into Tennessee. She goes county to county, meeting with legislators and counting votes, before setting up shop at the Hermitage. But right away, she realizes what she's up against.
2: By all accounts, Miss Pearson was a force to be reckoned with.
1: Josephine Pearson has fixed it so Carrie Kat can't even be seen in public. She's tagged her all over town as a northern carpetbagger, which is a deeply resonant slur. And it essentially turns Kat's expertise into a liability. And for six weeks, Kat is stuck running the campaign from behind the scenes in her hotel room.
2: It was hot and humid. Nashville is notoriously humid in August, and there was no air conditioning, so you had to keep your windows open, and it was a sweltering summer for Mrs. Cat.
1: And that was just one of Pearson's brilliant early maneuvers. For instance, she got to the Hermitage first, where she immediately started hogging up all the space.
2: The story goes when Josephine Pearson arrived... In late July, she, right at the very front desk when she checked in, she also reserved the meeting rooms.
1: All of the rooms. She just booked out all the available space. And then she turned those rooms into an exhibition of suffrage depravity. She laid out a series of artifacts and pamphlets that were meant to reveal the suffragists as anti-Christian, anti-family, and most of all, anti-white. The whole exhibit is best summed up by an old photograph we stumbled upon while touring the hermitage. So you would go this way to the dining room, this way to the lobby, and so you come in. Oh, goodness. Okay, so... Describe what we're looking at here. This
2: picture is the anti-suffrage headquarters here at the Hermitage Hotel. And I think it's very interesting to note uh, how posed this picture was. And just the symbolism here, a, a woman with a Confederate flag proudly waving an old Confederate flag general, presumably, or an officer, everybody seemed to be a colonel in the Confederate Army by 1920, uh, has been trotted
1: out, and... Uh... The old guy's sitting in a wheelchair, staring straight ahead into the camera. Josephine is standing to one side of him. She's got her hand resting on his back in an unmistakably maternal gesture, and her head's sort of cocked at something in the distance, almost like a dare. Her colleague stands on the other side of the chair, waving the Confederate battle flag. So we're fighting the Civil War during
3: this whole whole um, summer of 1920. Elaine Weiss again. There was a lot of rhetoric and propaganda distributed in Tennessee at this time that says this is going to bring back Reconstruction. It's going to bring back the horrors of white people not being able to be in control of their society.
1: Because if the 19th Amendment gave all women the right
3: to vote, that included black women. And as controversial as giving white women the vote because it would take them out of their sphere, giving black women the vote in the southern states was just deemed unacceptable. This is a
1: bright line. Black women as voters, present a very real threat to the balance of power in America. And this is not just a rhetorical point. Casey Jimrick showed us two documents in Josephine Pearson's papers that really illustrate why. One of them quantifies the demographic nightmare that women's suffrage would mean for the South. It points to a census table with the voting age population of all 13 states listed by race and by gender. And they've got the actual math here. They do. Let's, let's, let me see if we can break down this actual math. So they're, so they're saying in Tennessee... It shows that if you're counting only men, white people have a comfortable majority throughout the South. But when you add women, the margin narrows by a lot. In fact, in two states, South Carolina and Mississippi, women's suffrage puts white voters fully in the minority. And that's just the states. The document also points out that whites will lose their majority in 200 southern counties. 200! You can just hear how horrifying this idea is to the anti-suffragists when you read their flyer.
4: Even if every white woman went to the polls, which she will not, the Negro vote would be doubled, or more than doubled, while the white vote could not possibly be doubled.
1: We'll be outnumbered by our former slaves. Pearson circulated this document all summer, leaving copies on legislators' desks, handing them out at the Capitol. And at the bottom of the page, the flyer invited readers to the Hermitage Hotel to see, quote, original copies of three force bills. Okay, stay with me here. Force bills. What are these? Essentially, they're a series of bills that came up in Congress just after the Civil War. They were an effort to enforce the 14th and 15th Amendments, which gave Black men the right to vote. Southern states were already finding all kinds of ways to undermine those rights. By poll taxes, by literacy laws, and pure intimidation, physical attacks and lynchings. That was the immediate problem, violence. But the point of the violence was the census math. Remember, the Southern power structure always rested upon minority rule, a minority of white men. The South had a huge population of Black people who justified its seats in Congress, but who didn't vote. So after the Civil War, Congress tried to fix that. And a series of bills threatened to reduce the South's number of seats if they didn't let Black people vote. That never happened. But one of the flyers Josephine Pearson circulated warned that the 19th Amendment would surely bring this dangerous idea back.
4: If they want to open every old wound of 50 years ago and revive the Reconstruction Acts in their entirety, they will vote for the Anthony Amendment. But Southern manhood is still ready to defend Anglo-Saxon civilization, and these states will vote no.
1: You already know the end of this story. Women did, of course, win the right to vote. And yes, it did happen in Tennessee. But it was a nail-biter. It passed by a single vote. And, you know, once again, a mom played a pivotal role. Feb Byrne, who convinced her son, a young lawmaker, to defy party leadership and do the right thing. That's the feel-good story people like to remember. An individual making a courageous choice that changed history. But somehow, we skip past why his vote was so courageous in the first place. Because he wasn't just upending male power. He was also threatening white power and we forget other stuff too.
3: Um to um I guess my disappointment, I found that the suffragists used the math argument also.
1: Remember those census tables Josephine Pearson circulated? That was actually a defensive move. The suffragists had been circulating tables of their own, ones that misleadingly included children and therefore made it look like whites could keep a comfortable majority in the next election. They're trying to say,
3: no, it's not going to shake up the social foundations of your state and of your culture because there are more white women than black women. And so white supremacy is secure. And they actually do
1: say that. Of course, it was true. White supremacy was secure. States kept Black women from voting just like they had kept Black men out. And they did it for decades, right up until the 70s. In some places, they still do it.
3: Randolph County's Board of Elections will decide Friday morning whether to slash the polling places across this predominantly African-American county from nine locations to just
1: two. Which brings us back to Paula Casey and her campaign in Memphis Today.
0: So we've spent all these years trying to overcome this. But, you know, what I think is so important is that when we look at the Constitution, we look at the amendment process, rights are expanded, not curtailed. And that's so critical to our country's history. And that's why suffrage history is so important. When you see rights expanding, not curtailing. And the states try with the voter suppression, but we're going to overcome that.
1: And maybe she's right. The record number of women who won primary fights in 2018. The remarkable diversity of those women. The unexpectedly contested races, even in the South. Maybe it's all the beginning of something new.
0: We can now call the race in Alabama. Fox News is now projecting that Doug Jones will defeat Republican Roy Moore.
4: Black Americans showed up in record numbers as we've been reporting, especially Black women.
2: Black voters, especially Black women, were motivated to vote not just for Doug Jones, but against Roy Moore.
4: The African American community, thank you!
1: Still, suffrage history offers a bracing lesson. The Confederacy lost the fight on paper. Women and Black people wrote voting rights into the Constitution. But in practice, Jefferson Davis has kept his spot on that pedestal. And nearly a century later, it is still the case that any real shift in political power will require us to first knock over the pedestal of white supremacy. So we'll see. But you know, not long after we left Memphis, Paula called and left a voicemail for Jess, our producer. Hey
0: Jess, Paula Casey, you're not gonna believe what happened. I came walking down Front Street and they disassembled the Jefferson Davis pedestal and removed it. So now it is no longer in the park, but I just wanted you and Kai to know that they removed the Jefferson Davis pedestal. Talk to you later, bye.
1: The lawsuit's ongoing, but Paula is one step closer to completing Tennessee's suffrage trail. I hope you will make it, and before the 100-year anniversary, which is coming up pretty soon. In the meantime, what about men? We are so accustomed to talking about how women relate to gender, how they make and hold space for themselves in public and in private. But if we're gonna genuinely talk about identity politics, then how was male identity shaped? And what's it got to do with how we wield power today? So there was this acceptance, this validation this longing for that ideal that somebody who's rumply, ugly, but rich could have anything he wanted in the sexual arena. The creation of the indoor man who gets access to anything and any body he wants. That's next on the United States of Anxiety. United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios and the newsroom of WNYC. This episode was reported by me and our producer, Jessica Miller. It was edited by Karen Froman, who is also our executive producer. Casey Means is our technical director. Our theme music was written by Hannes Brown and performed by the Outerboro Brass Band. Thanks to our intern, Allison Light, for her dramatic readings of anti-suffragists. Andy Lancet is our archivist. Our team also includes Amanda Aranchik, Mary Harris, Christopher Johnson, Kari Pitkin, Courtney Stein, and Christopher Wirth. Jim Schachter is Vice President of News for WNYC, and I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for listening. The United States of Anxiety is supported in part by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Additional support for WNYC's election coverage is provided by Emerson Collective the New York Community Trust and New York Public Radio trustee Dr. Mary White.
0: Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org/election.